You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Brother Rick. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll look at verses 19 through 20, Lord willing, this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, I encourage you to take the notes out in your bulletin and find the mob front and back of the scriptures and notes that you can fill in uh, the blank for and help you better retain the message. Also, if you're online, uh, if you're here, you can go, if you have a smartphone, you can go to the Version Bible app, that's Y-O-U version. Go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and um, pretty much the same notes, quotes, and references should be uh, on your device for you as well. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. I want to preach a message I've entitled, Linda is talking with her three-year-old, Mateo, who wants cupcakes after refusing to eat dinner and went behind his mother's back to his grandma. Mateo begins his defense in front of his mom. Okay, Linda, Linda, listen, listen, listen. Sensing his argument is not going well, he sweet talks his mother. Linda, honey, honey, look at this. Right now we can't do anything if we can't get anything out of the wall. And we're going to break everything down. He is trying to avoid a spanking at all costs. When was the last time someone accused you of wrongdoing? How did you react? Were you defensive like Mateo? Did you deny it? Did you try to argue and justify your conduct? If you say that you're quick to admit wrongdoing, have you reached that point with God? Ready to put away all your defenses and accept His decision about your life? If not, what keeps you admitting your sin to Him? Alan Mann tracks a trend in his book, Atonement for a Sinless Society, where he points out that Western culture no longer has a meaningful concept of sin and guilt. People see themselves as inherently good and then victims of economic, political, and social forces. People are aware, however, that their real self, who they really are, and their ideal self, who they want to be, they're not identical. But they can't figure out why. And it must be because of something else, surely not them. I hear people say, and, I, and, I'm, and this is what I hear on the media and social media, this is what it is. I'm just trying to become the best possible version of myself. 
I hear that a lot. But biblically, there is no such thing. Your best possible version of yourself falls infinitely short of God's holy and righteous standard. Romans chapter 3, if you remember long ago, begins with the Jews, God's chosen people, the church of the Old Testament. That's kind of like what I like to say. That they have an advantage by possessing God's Word, in particular the Old Testament and in particular the Mosaic Law. Think the Ten Commandments. However, just having God's Word or having the Ten Commandments did not exempt them from God's judgment. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, God looks looks, uh, down from heaven to see if there is anyone who seeks and fears Him. He could find no one. No one was righteous. No one seeks God. No one lives a life of goodness, obedient to God's every desire. No one fears God. And Paul puts it this way. He says, we are all under sin. Remember that, in the singular. And I would, I would put it this way. We are in the grip of evil, every single one of us. One of the fascinating things, my wife and I, we just got back from vacation and we were listening to a podcast about this terrible murder and massacre that happened in Piketon County. And one of the things that fascinates me when they go through the Uh, the psychology of those who perpetrate these crimes, they always ask, how could somebody do such a thing? And I'm sitting there as a pastor going, it's in everybody. It's not that difficult if you hear the word of God. It's in me, it's in you. We're in the grip of evil. Theologians label this truth the doctrine of total depravity. It does not mean that every human has done every bad thing possible. Total depravity means from cradle to grave, our natural inclination is toward sin. And sin affects every facet of our existence, including our desires, our intellect, our imagination and behavior. The potential for every conceivable human vice is in you and in me. The Jews' possession of God's Word did not keep them from this sin. It was already there. Did you catch that? It was already there. So what is the advantage of having God's Word? If sin's already there, why give us this? And the big question is, why give the law in particular? Why tell us about the Ten Commandments? That's the question that Paul is going to answer in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Let's look at it. It says this, now we know that whatever the law says, think Ten Commandments, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. And he's in reference particularly to the Jews. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin, if you underline your Bible, underline sin, notice that it's in the singular. The knowledge of sin comes through the law. 
Here's what I want you to write down, and we're going to unpack this this morning. It's number one, the law shows sin. And I, my emphasis is on sin, not sins. The law shows sin. The law in the Bible is God's revelation or His self-disclosure of His character and will and the standard by which He will judge you and I. The law includes all the commandments and judgments contained in the Bible. And we'll get to that number here in just a minute. When the Bible here says that those who are subject to the law, it is in reference primarily referring to the Jews. Because the Jews have disobeyed the law, they stand condemned by God. But if you will go back just one more chapter, you'd have to go back to several sermons. We talked about that the Gentiles have a law as well. It's not a written law, but it's a law that's written on our conscience. We have an objective moral law that stands outside the written word and our conscience will witness to us. It will accuse us or excuse us when we behave in certain ways. And the reason for that is so that we can say this, the whole world has a law from God, whether it's the written explicit law in the Bible or whether it's written on our conscience in some measure. None of us are not under the law. Everybody get it? We're all under some kind of all of God's law. And the point is, we've all departed from it. So we can either look in the Word of God and see precisely where we went astray, or we can feel what our conscience does to us every time we depart from that moral law that stands outside of God's written Word. And there are two purposes of this law. I want to give you the secondary purpose First, I know it's going to sound odd. I'm going to tell you what the law does secondarily. Because Paul's going to tell us what the law does primarily. But secondarily, write this down. The law guides our actions. The law guides our actions. It shows us how we ought to live. It shows us how we ought to behave. What we ought to say. What we should leave undone. And what things we should do. But that's not the primary purpose of the law. And in fact, I'll tell you right now, I can help you read your Bible if you'll just remember that the primary purpose of the law is not to show you how to live a good life. That's not what it's there for. Primarily, the law was written to show sin. That's its ultimate function. And notice why. So that every one of us can praise ourselves? So that everyone can feel self-righteous and confident and good? That's not what the text says. So that everyone can be what? Silent. It wants us to shut our mouths before God. The image here is the situation of a defendant in the courtroom of law who has no more challenges or objections to voice, no more to say in response to the charges brought against him or her. Do you understand what we're saying? Is that we're sitting there as defendants on trial before God's law, and the law leaves us where we go, we have nothing to say for ourselves and our behavior. We are guilty as charged. That's what God's law is functioning for. 
And then notice this, so that the whole world may become, may become subject to God's judgment. The law silences our excuses and shows our culpability before God. We are literally liable to punishment. We are coming to the confession. I want you to understand what the law of God is supposed to do. If the word of God is preached rightly, you should arrive at the conclusion, I am a sinner and God deserves to throw me in hell. God is the one offended. He is the prosecutor, the witness against you, and the judge. And ladies and gentlemen, he is the executioner. You and I are liable to him for willful and inexcusable collaboration with evil. We creatures are rebels and traitors to our Creator, and we await the sentence of the full wrath of God in judgment and hell that we deserve. And the Bible wants all of us to reach that point, that we understand that. You say, Josh, but I'm a good person. No, you've not broken man's law. That just means you're not a criminal. But all of us have broken God's law, and that means we are sinners. And the punishment for sinners is way worse than criminals. Remember, sin is more than just committing unlawful or unbiblical acts. It is a power over a person's life. It dominates us and taints and corrupts everything we think, feel, say, and do. And that's why Paul adds another conclusion to this. He says that no one is justified by the works of the law. And I'll have to explain what does he mean by justified. But let's first look at works of the law. Works of the law refers to all the things that are done in obedience to the law. Trying to live the good life that God wants. And I need you to know this. That law includes all of God's requirements In the Old Testament alone, that's 613 commands. Have we done the works of the law? No. None of us have. But notice this concept, to be justified in his sight. It describes being declared in a right relationship with God. So think about what Paul is saying. If you are trusting, if you're relying, if you're resting on having lived a good life, all right, and the, and the Bible shows you what the good life is, just in the Old Testament, there's 613 things you ought to do. If you're relying on your obedience from thought, feeling, actions, and words to that, Paul is letting you know, come judgment day, you will not be declared right with God. You will have fallen short. That's what it's going to say. You did not meet the standard and the expectation. This is a declarative act that pronounces righteousness of a particular party in some matter of dispute. To be declared righteous. It's the announcement in our idea of when a jury pronounces the verdict of guilty or not guilty. Can we declare the person righteous or innocent? Paul's emphasis is that no one will be declared right before God based on good works. Because of total depravity, 
And here's the reason why this doctrine is so important. You and I can never obey the law of God sufficiently enough to gain favor or acceptance with God. Sin runs much more deeper than you think. Can I tell you one of the things that's one of the most disheartening parts about understanding the doctrine of total depravity is even when I'm in preaching, I am still sinning. Because I can't tell you with absolute 100% certainty that my motives are nothing more than to make much of Jesus. I want that to be the case. Right? I don't want to preach out of my irritation to further my reputation or anything like that. I know that, but I can't tell you for 100% certainty that's not going to come in it at all. You mean to tell me every good act you've ever committed, you've, you've done it with 100% love and compassion? No. I mean, just, that's what I'm saying. It's tainted everything. We have no good work to offer God. No good work. And this is why we have to get back to the primary purpose of God's written word, to show sin. See, your conscience will tell you when you sinned in the verb. What you do not know because sin, evil, is deceitful is that you won't know why am I doing these things. What's up? And the law of God is written to reveal and define sin, evil, that lives in you. All right? Knowledge of sin means that the law gives people an understanding of sin in the singular. As a power that holds everyone in bondage. When people break the law, they learn of the presence and power of sin in their own life. It's dominating us. It's influencing us. And here's the point. We purposely go along with it. We're collaborators with it. The law does not reveal our righteousness or whether we're good people. It was never intended to provoke a sense of pride. You should never read the Bible when it comes along and go, yep, I've done that. That was not the intention. It was to make us conscious of the fact of our sin, our evil, our collaboration with it, and our need for the grace of and forgiveness of God. If we fail to acknowledge this, that we are under sin, in the grip of evil, if we fail to recognize that we're sinners, justly condemned for all our failures, there's nothing but sin in our bones. To confess it, to repent of it, to change our attitude and perspective toward our sin. If we fail to do that, we have been disqualified from salvation. You can't be saved if you don't know the trouble that you're in. An Englishman, J.B. Phillips, wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament called the New Testament in Modern English. Now he wrote this a while back, so it's not quite as modern. But he paraphrased this text, Romans 3, 19 through 20, this way. We know what the message of the law is to those who live under it, that every excuse may die on the lips of him who makes it, and no living man may think himself beyond the judgment of God. No man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law's demands. And here's how he, he puts it. The straight edge 
of the law shows us how crooked we are. We're all crooked. Born crooked. We're crooks, literally. Some say that dismal Paul is accused is accusing everybody of being steeped in criminal wickedness and evil. We consider ourselves to be upright model citizens who are fit candidates for heaven. But when we look into the law closely, we soon see that we are not fit. We're not upright. We're crooked. We have no excuse for sin. We are on our way to hell and there is nothing we can do about it. We think we can. Some of us wrap ourselves up in what the Bible calls self-righteousness or filthy rags. Literally, it's menstrual rags to God. That's how he looks at our good works. Because they're tainted by sin. So what should we do? What should you do when you hear this message? Don't say a word. No more excuses. No more arguments. No more justifications. No more confidence in religious activity. No more benevolent view of God divorced from the fear of God. You see the scripture? Yes. Do you see that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you hear the word? Yeah. Do you confess that you're condemned? Yes. This is what God wants you to get to. Once you say yes to those things, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am condemned. Martin Luther says, having been humbled by the law and having been brought to a right estimate of himself, a man will repent. He will discover that he is so depraved that no strength, no works, no merits of his own will deliver him from his guilt. He will then understand the meaning of Paul's words. I am sold under sin and they are all under sin. We are helpless sinners who can do nothing to gain God's acceptance. Sin is on our throats And we're all awaiting sentencing. That's it. So listen. We need mercy. God in love sent His Son Jesus, a liberator, a Savior to free us from the power of sin. Jesus, God's Son in love, came to give us grace and mercy Only, this is an amazing statement, what I'm about to tell you. Only Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, lived God's law perfectly. He's the only one. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes said. Jesus Christ kept the great commandment to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, and with all his mind. And love his neighbor as himself. And then Hughes says this, how many, uh, how many of us have kept this divine requirement perfectly since we got up this morning? None of us. Not even one. Jesus alone is sinless. He alone is holy. There is no one like Him. He is peerless. Well, good for Jesus. Right? 
This is where the gospel kicks in. This is the good news. This is the message. Then Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of Yahweh, the Trinity, shed His own blood for the forgiveness, the erasing of all our sins. And He absorbed the wrath of God against sin to make us right with God and to grant us peace with God. Paul's going to argue here in a minute. We've been justified by faith. He declares us righteous, not based on our work, but the meritorious work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we just make much of Jesus. We cling to Him. We embrace Him. We confess Him to show that this is the very truth of God, that Jesus alone is our righteousness, is our way of being declared right. God raised Jesus from the dead and announced forgiveness of sin and the gift of righteousness in His name only. That's the only way. He's going, I will erase your sin and He's going to credit you with the perfect life of Jesus. I'll just give it to you. When Jesus ascended, Jesus isn't done saving you yet. When Jesus ascended, He poured out the Holy Spirit into the church and on to the world to convict people of sin. That's so amazing. We're so blind. We even need the author's help to see we're evil. Show us our sin and the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus and the judgment that is coming. The Holy Spirit is working in you now to go, these are realities. It's God's very truth. The Holy Spirit is here working in your life today Whether you're present here or watching online, He's drawing you, dragging you to the repentance of sin and faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Exchange your sin for the good works of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Going, I'm a sinner, I'm condemned. I confess and cling to Jesus. That's my only hope. That's what we're encouraging you to do. Some years ago, there was a dance instructor out late on a Saturday evening. In the wee hours of the morning, he staggered back into his hotel room. He fell into his bed and went to sleep. The next morning, he was suddenly jolted awake by his clock radio. A man was speaking and he was asking this question. If in the next few moments, some great disaster should happen and you should be killed... And if you find yourself before God and He should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? The question amazed and confounded the dance instructor. He had never heard a question like that. He realized that he did not have an answer. He had not a single thing to say. His mouth was suddenly stopped. He sat silently at his bed while Dr. Barnhouse, the preacher on the radio program, explained the answer to him, Jesus. The the dance instructor was the late D. James Kennedy, who pastored Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and the author of the popular witnessing and evangelism program known as Evangelism Explosion. 
Kennedy believed on Jesus Christ that day in his hotel room, and the question used to save him became the chief tool in his evangelism strategy. Has your mouth been stopped? Are you boasting of your own self-righteousness and defending yourself before God? If so, you can never be saved by God's grace. It is only when you stand silent before God as a sinner that He can save you. The whole world is guilty before God. and That includes you and me. Someday... You will die. You will face God and he'll say to you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What is your answer? Can you answer this? My right to heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for me. He took the punishment for my sin. He is my right to heaven because he has become my righteousness. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Again, two things. Number one, if today you have realized the Holy Spirit through God's Word, the Bible, has shown you that you're a sinner condemned by God, then that's the exact place you want to be in. Because here is the offer of the gospel. Repent of sin and trust only in Jesus for salvation, forgiveness, a changed heart, eternal life. That it's only in Him. Here's the great news. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears our thoughts and whispers. He is present with us here in this room and wherever you're listening or watching. And if you want to call out to Him, it says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is listening. If you want to call out to Him, you can be saved, rescued, forgiven. Pardon, receive the righteousness of God, be declared righteous, be granted everlasting life in Jesus' name today. You say, how can all that be? It's not because of us. <laughs> it's because of God's goodness and love in Christ that he's done this for you. I want to teach you a prayer, a prayer that you can model or repeat after me, that you can pray, call out to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and to commit your life to Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, will you just pray this silently in your heart? Cry out to Jesus. Say, Dear Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. I confess that I am guilty. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. You lived a perfect life. You shed your own blood and died to forgive all my sin. I believe God raised you from the dead to forgive me. Please forgive me. Remember my sin no more. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change my heart and life. And grant me 
eternal life for your name's sake. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the Bible teaches Jesus taught his disciples, those who follow him, believe in him, trust him for salvation, that the next step in their walk or the relationship with him, he's already done everything for you. This is, this is nothing that gains satisfaction with God. He's your satisfaction. But this is where the law kicks in for that secondary purpose, to show you how to live. And the next thing the law, God's law, Christ says, is that we should be baptized. Baptism is the way we go public with that private confession of our sin and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we go under the water, we are showing the world that we believe in Jesus' death for our sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're saying we believe in Jesus' resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and that we have eternal life. And mom, please understand, this is not salvific. It does not save you. But it expresses salvation. That if you haven't been baptized, my, my encouragement to you, the next step, fill out that tear-off panel, check baptism, text BELIEVE to our text and church number, go to our website, find the baptism tab, fill it out. Give us the opportunity. You're not signing up, just give us the opportunity to talk to you about baptism. Let me just chat with you about it. The last thing that I want us to do, you say, you're a believer here today. And you go, Josh, you just pretty much preached the gospel to us. Yeah, and isn't it good? Isn't it good to be reminded that it's not us? That's all Him? That's refreshing. That's, that, that helps my confidence because I don't have to put confidence in myself. I want to read this prayer to you. It's adapted from a Lutheran book of prayer. But I want to ask If you're a believer, if you're a disciple, that if you pray something like this in this time of reflection and meditation, it says, Lord, our sinful natures deceive us to believe it is okay to do things our way, to trust our judgment, to ignore your commands. Bring me to the judgment of your law so that I may see the condemnation of my sin and my alienation from you. And then notice this. This is so important. Bless me with the forgiving word of the gospel that I might believe in you and have the joy of forgiveness and the living hope of eternal life. Help me, Lord, to be an instrument in your hands in Jesus' name. Will you pray that during this time of meditation?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Lord, we understand not as fully as you see, but we do get that we're depraved, that we're in the grip of evil, that we've all sinned, collaborated with evil, and we deserve your righteous anger, your wrath, your judgment on us. But at the same exact time, your love, mercy, and grace, your pity and compassion that, that are equally a part of your nature reaches out to us to set us free in Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. You, you were under no compulsion to give up your one and only son, and yet you did. You didn't spare anything. You gave us your best. And when his blood poured out on Calvary, it, it made you forget all our sin. That you do not hold a single thing against us. As Paul says, that debt has been canceled. Because of Jesus' blood. We thank you for the resurrection. That we're not here just preaching about some dead rabbi. But that we know for sure he is your son. And he has done what we can never do for ourselves. And that's bring us peace with you. To call you father. And for you to call us children. And as John says, and such we really are. Thank you that we are a part of your family and your kids. We thank you for reconciling us by our Redeemer, Jesus. Help us make much of them. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. I have just a couple of quick announcements for you. Um, I do want to remind you that if you are interested, if you, if you have a ministry, a Sunday school class, a Bible study, and you would like to reserve uh, the fellowship hall. Now, it's not open for private you know, parties, showers, or anything like that, uh, but for ministerial purposes. Uh, we are allowing uh, the church to do that uh, with the condition that you use all the social guidelines that we're trying to maintain here in the sanctuary, all right? Uh, but if you would like to reserve the hall, uh, you can go to mtcarmeldemarest.com forward slash hall and fill out your request there. Again, it's a request. we got to make sure that it doesn't conflict with anything else on the calendar. A calendar should appear on that screen with you to show you uh, if there's anything already there. So that, that should help some. But I do want to remind you uh, to do that. Also, tonight uh, we will have probably, unless I just talk way too long, and y'all know I got that gift, but we're going to do visual theology. It's the last chapter, chapter 16, where um, we, we are looking at Jesus in the epistles, the, the letters of the apostles, and one paragraph, like on the book of Revelation, for those who know, we're studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. We'll be in chapter 4. This is a good time. If you've missed out, this is a great time to join in because it's a whole new section in the book of Revelation when we get to chapter 4. So we'll be doing that Wednesday. And then last but not least, let me encourage you, RSVP for church. You can do that on the back of the tear-off panel now. Drop it in the offering box on your way out. And then please rush out of here, okay, uh, for two reasons. We, uh, we encourage you to fellowship outside around the sanctuary, and it's beautiful outside. Oh, man, the weather's been amazing. Uh, so do that, and then also it gives our, our, an opportunity for our greeters to wipe down uh, the pews and things. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Brother Rick's going to come and lead us in one last worship song.
You know, I was reading this week, and I, of all things, let me encourage you every day, people, be picking up the Word of God, especially in these trying times that we live in, to hear the absolute truth and even what Josh has brought to us today and know oh, how it spoke to my heart. And when Peter on the day of Pentecost stood up and, and uh, gave that great sermon uh, when the Holy Spirit had descended on them and the people heard it and Peter did just what Josh did. He convinced us of sin, who Jesus was and how he's the only way. And they replied and, and they said, uh, what must brothers, what must we do? And that's, uh, Peter said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Praise God that happened today to anyone that would even turn up that heart of that life to Christ. And uh, so what a mighty God we serve. It ain't nothing we've done. We can never earn it. Josh is so right. What, a, what gospel's being preached here at Mount Carmel. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's the truest form that I've ever listened to. And I know God's blessing us, and, and it's different than the world. It ain't tickling ears and all these things, but it's the absolute truth of who we really are and who God really is and how much he loves us so much that it's only clinging to him and making much of Jesus that our life can count for anything. So what a mighty God we serve. You've got it in there. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.